Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. This is the final part on the series on Provence. I'm getting many compliments on my pronunciation, so you get you get the credit for that. Okay, I'm sure we'll get many hits just based on that. <laughs> yes. This week you called Surviving the Offensive. Yes. It's a look at the third controversy over the Rambam, but also going back to look at life in those four ghettos and seeing the difficulties they faced quite aside from the deprivations within the ghetto, rather those that came from the church. Just before you start, if I can interrupt you, I have to mention that we've been besieged by requests for you to spend just a few moments answering the philosophical issue that you raised last week. What is the difference between the second and the fourth principle of faith of the Rambam? Especially since, as you mentioned, faith can't be misunderstood. It's too dangerous. And you left us with a, a cliffhanger. question, a cliffhanger. Right. So we don't leave anyone unfaithful as a result okay. of yourself. Okay, so a couple of minutes and we will, I believe, have enough of an understanding of the basics. So the question to recap revolves around the fact that in the second, it says that God was, is, and will be. And in the fourth, it says that he is the first and the last, which seem to be the same. So the second principle is saying that Hashem is one, which, as the Rambam himself points out in his commentary to the Mishnah, means one as unique. It doesn't mean one as opposed to two, or even one as simply the only one of its type, because that would be true of the physical world too, perhaps as an example. When mankind was first made, there was only one man and only one woman, but neither were one, so to speak, written in capital letters, because they both basically shared the same DNA as each other. There were small changes that made one male and the other female. The ratio is different. One, as applies to Hashem, means totally without reference to anything else, to any created being, to any spiritual being, completely other, properly unique, outside of any frame of reference, and therefore completely unbounded by uh, space or time, and therefore was, is, and will be, unbounded by any limitations. And the verse the Rambam uses to explain this second principle is the Shema. When we say Hashem is Echad in the Shema, this is what we have to have in mind, a total uniqueness and oneness. In fact, even the very idea that Hashem is, so to speak, both merciful and vengeful are just ways that we talk about him. But God has no such differentiation. Everything that emanates from Hashem is one. It's incorrect to identify God with one aspect or another and and failing to appreciate his unity. So when we say Rachum v'chanun, the 13 attributes to God, what do we mean? Those are ways that we relate to 
God, but they don't define God. It's the way it's manifested to us in our understanding. Yes. Now, when it comes to the fourth of the principles, God being first, there it means that he is the prime cause. We're, so to speak, not describing what he is, but what he does. He is eternal, but he's the creator of the world at some point, which is something that Aristotle disagrees with, because Aristotle believed that both God and nature, or the world, were eternal. And the interesting and important thing here is that Aristotle claims that the Rumbum is making an unproven assertion about the world being created at a, so to speak, later point in time. And he is right in that we cannot prove intellectually or philosophically this fourth principle. It is actually faith. It's a munna. It's based on the opening verse in the Torah, Bereshis Bora Elekim, that God created. And therefore the Rambam defines his fourth principle with a different verse, one from the very end of the five books of the Torah, Ma'oina Kedem. You see Rashi there for further insight. Well, thank you. I think that definitely clarified it somewhat. Is is this Moshe Shapiro or this is your... If you look at the commentary of the Rambam to the Mishnah, you more or less get, I'd say, three quarters of what I've just said. Okay. Yes. So the third controversy starts in 1304. And over the hundred years from the first argument in 1191, Provence has become strongly pro Rambam. Philosophy and science are now entrenched in, in Jewish learning. It's a totally different landscape. The Rambam has been accepted by the Svardim, by the Provençals, although not by the Ashkenazim, simply because they don't do philosophy. Uh, not the Kuzari, which is much more Masera-based, not Rapsadjagon. And therefore, down south, whereas in the 1230s, the traditionalists in Provence wanted a total ban on philosophy, here... They are fine with, I guess what you might call, from philosophy. And therefore, although generally it is called part of the Maimonidean controversy, it has nothing to do with his writings, but they were the catalyst because they introduced philosophy into the region in the first place. And it therefore means that the Talmud HaChem, the scholars on both sides, were not far apart from each other. They both recognized a common threat and the question was how to deal with it. What do you mean the common threat? So then the issue was extreme rationalism, meaning an approach to the stories in Chumash which say that they may or may not have happened, and that really the stories are there to teach us ideas. The people in Tanakh are concepts, Avraham and Sora, they're not necessarily actual people, but they teach us about, you know, Tzura versus Chaymer, matter versus intellect. And these people who would be espousing these ideas would be keeping Shabbos, but have very radical intellectual beliefs. And the outcome would be that the natural conclusion is that mitzvahs are not always literal. You need to understand the ideas they contain. 
And because the Rambam, in his Guide to the Perplexed, gave Tame HaMitzvahs reasons for the mitzvahs, these reasons become the essence, not the actions. I mean, you have people around today who say that all Medrash is allegorical. People who consider themselves religious, they'll tell you that the flood didn't happen. And therefore, this problem spills over to the general populace, both in Spain and in Provence. And this is long before reform. Yes, yeah, yeah. This is an, an intellectual approach, very intellectual approach to all of Judaism, to Jewish practice. And the question that remained was, how do you deal with these radicals? Do you ignore them and thereby starve them of oxygen by not giving them a public platform? Or do you ban them? Now, neither has a perfect outcome, because if you ignore them, then people could be influenced by them because no one is publicly condemning their teaching. But if you ban them, then the less radical philosophers will feel somewhat under attack as well and will support their more extreme colleagues, which will only keep the argument going. Now, Abba Mori was a rabbi in Montpellier, and he brought the Rashbot on board because the Rashbot had gravitas. He was the greatest halachic authority in Spain. He was a pupil of Nachmanides, of the Ramban, and he really wanted a full-scale ban. But the Rashbot understood that a full harem would be impossible. So the Rashbot engages with these people, in particular with a guy called Levi ben Avraham, the author of Livias Chen, which explains what he called the Sodes Hatera. The secrets deals with prophecy, the stories of Tanakh, the reasons for mitzvahs. And if we were to be generous, we would say that Levi ben Avram's work has an excessive reliance on the non-literal meaning of biblical stories. You know, he talks about the three angels who visit Abraham as a reference to Mercury, the moon, and the sun, and an allusion to the, the three powers of the rational mind. And the 12 tribes are the constellation, right? So you sort of get the picture of what he writes and how he describes things. Now, the Rashbar, after looking into the matter and receiving reports from a number of correspondence that he had in Perpignan, they agree that this Levi ben Avram is a scholar, and the Rashbar writes to him in a letter that we still have, that what he was teaching is very misleading to the masses. And he tries to bring him back into the fold, and he gives well, him the... Why, why wasn't he more harsh? Well, it, because initially, he gives him the benefit of the doubt, and says, you know, you're a learned man, so why did you abandon learning the Talmud? And you and I both know that not everybody has an, uh, you know, an equal intellect, and therefore these teachings are dangerous and can be misinterpreted. But he gets nowhere. And ultimately he declared him a heretic and wrote that a believer in Muhammad is better than him and wanted his works banned. And this Levi bin Avram is still the, so to speak, darling of liberal interpreters of biblical philosophy to this very day. So the Rashbon now comes to a compromise. His cherem, his ban, was only made locally. He was the, the chief rabbi of Barcelona and of Catalonia. 
and he wanted to get consensus from a broader camp. So he appealed to other regions to follow suit, but initially it starts there in Spain, and it was only for people under the age of 25. And on the urging of Abba Mori, the Rashbaugh's letter to the community of Montpellier was read out in the shawl there on a Shabbos in Elul in 1305. Now, within days of the Catalonian decree making it into Provence, a group of enraged Jewish scholars in Montpellier excommunicated Abamori for his activity against the study of philosophy. In response, Abamori pronounces excommunication on his opponents for unjustly attempting to excommunicate him. And so on and so you know, that's how it carries on. Rabbi Menachem ben Shlomo Hameiri, who is normally just referred to as the Meiri, who is from Perpignan, which is on the Spanish border, headed the other group. He's the author of a multi-volume work on the Talmud, and he wrote that you can't just make a ban on philosophy, and we're talking here about non-Jewish philosophy, for everyone, just because of the few. And he brings as a proof to this that Chazal, sages of the Talmud, included Svarim in Tanakh, which they were doubtful about. They included verses like Nase Odom, God saying, let us make man, which implies that God has equals. And they, their conclusion was, if somebody wants to make a mistake, then fine. And so the Miri said the same of works of philosophy. And he opposed Abomori's efforts and published an open letter asking him to abandon his fight. Sounds like a dispute that could go on for ages. So actually, it was never put to bed. I mean, it would continue in the general Jewish world in ways, for instance, you could contrast the terror of Poland and the terror of Italy in the 16th or 17th century and, and continues in, into the 21st century. But within France, it came to an abrupt end about a year later when there was an expulsion in July 1306 from this whole region from Languedoc, as we mentioned uh, in the first part of our series. And Abamori attributed this decree of expulsion, which came out on Tisha B'Av, to divine retribution for the sins of his philosophic adversaries in Montpellier. And therefore, he continues his campaign. He's no longer in Montpellier. He's now in Arles uh, initially. The Rashbaugh then dies in 1310. The Meiri dies in 1316. And interestingly, many Jews who were exiled in 1306 found refuge in Perpignan because, uh, although nowadays it is part of France, at the time it belonged to the kingdom of Mallorca. And around four months later, Abomori himself attempts to settle there. But on the instruction of the local Jews, the agents of King James refuse him entry. And yet, when the Meiri died, Abomori composed a eulogy in rhyme in which he mourns the, the perfect sage who was known as Don Vidal Solomon, and he writes, known to us as Rabbi Menachem ben Shlomo HaMeiri. And he says, Meiri was an expert in Torah and in practice. And from the sources of uh, philosophy, he took, he drank the best part. 
Well, I mean, the Meiri is a household name in the yeshivas around the world for his commentary on the Gemara. Yep. Do we know much about him other than his famous commentary? Bits and pieces. He is basically the last Talmudic scholar in that region. Born in 1249, he dies, as I mentioned, in 1316. He's actually the first to mention about the occurrences of Lagba Omer. In his commentary in Yevomus, he writes that there is a tradition from the Goenim that on the 33rd day of the Omer, uh, the deaths of the students of Rabbi Kiva stopped, and therefore we don't fast on this day. A ban on getting married from Pesach is until this time. So it appears that perhaps until then they kept the full seven weeks between Pesach and Shavuos. Do we know where he's buried? No, but presumably Perpignan, because that's where he continued to live. But there, there would be no markers there. He was a great defender of Provence, not just philosophically, as we've seen, but halachically. He wrote a work called Mogen Avais, and because of it, we have a greater insight to the halachic rulings of Provence. One famous one is whether chicken has the status of milk, meaning do you wait at all after eating chicken before having cheese or milk? The Svardim were of the opinion that no waiting was required at all. This includes Nachmanides, the Rif, the Ra'ah, and they wanted to bring this law into Provence. So Meiri argues strongly against it, saying that the local ruling is like the Ashkenazim. But in Spain at the time, they did not wait at all between chicken and milk. Now, the most unusual thing about the Meiri's writings is that many of his Svarim almost disappeared for generations. You have parts here and there, especially on the tractates dealing with Shabbos and, and Yontif, but no complete set until 1920. And even more bizarrely, the only full copy of the manuscript was found in the Italian city of Parma in a Catholic library, which in the mid-1800s acquired a collection of one and a half thousand old Hebrew manuscripts and books from a Parma priest. And we ask no questions as to how he got hold of them. <laughs> and the Mishnah Brewer writes, you know, now that we have the Me'iri, and in fact, some of the works of the Me'iri were published even later, his commentary to Tehillim in 1936, his commentary to the Haggadah in 1966, and... It just blows the mind how many manuscripts we'll never have. Yes, absolutely, which are lost, and we're not even aware that they're lost sometimes. Um, he is well known for in Halacha, for his view that Christianity and Islam are not idolatrous and that they both fall under the the banner of monotheistic religions. In fact, his term for them is nations bound by ways of religion as opposed to pagans. Now, it has been erroneously claimed that it was his philosophical views that led him to this conclusion. But given that he was a follower of the Rambam, whose views on Christianity and even Islam were very stringent, that is highly unlikely. And it's very simplistic to just see him as uh, giving a carte blanche to Christianity, uh, because he quite clearly excluded them from certain halachas, particularly uh, regards to Tumantara, spiritual impurity, and other areas such as what is the definition of Odom, which is unique to the Jew. 
generally today we have the view that Christianity is certainly an idolatrous religion as opposed to in, Islam. In, in, in many ways, not absolutely, but for instance, with regards to conversion at the expense of a person's life. Visiting also, a church. Right. And also, for instance, with touching wine that has been handled by them as opposed to if it's been handled by maybe uh, a Muslim. Pod, maybe a podcast one day. Yeah. There's plenty of practical historical elements to it, that's for sure. Anyway, now that we've left the last of the Provençal Gedalim, let's move and conclude our series uh, with the four ghetto towns that we spoke of in week one in that little enclave in Provence called the Contat, which survived the sort of the next 300 years of ghetto life until 1791 and the French Revolution. As mentioned, that area was owned by the popes and limitations were imposed on the Jews, both in life and death. There was an attempt basically to control Judaism and an eye on saving their soul for the church. So conversion featured strongly in this papal state. Each week in these Arabakihilais, in these four communities, Jews were required to attend a sermon on Shabbos in the sort of nearby Christian house of charity, paid for by the Jews, who also had to pay for the upkeep of the place. And even the rabbi himself was obliged to hear these sermons. And in it, the Jews would either be insulted or enticed about their shortcomings in acknowledging the truth and the uh, true religion. So to shorten the sessions, the Jews would simply nod and say, yeah, fine, right, and, and carry on going, but basically close their ears to the message. And there was a sort of a good-humoured uh, folk saying amongst them, which is, we pay him, i.e. this priest, and he insults us. Hmm. And they had a, a monk walking up and down the rows, making sure they were listening, that they weren't asleep or, I don't know, wearing earplugs or whatever. Some, some find it hard to believe that this was a good ploy in getting Jews to join them. Yeah, not really. But whenever a Jew did join their ranks, and there were a few, it was done with great fanfare and ceremony, and the Jews had to foot the bill for any of these celebrations that the Christians carried out. I mean, I've seen, you know, sort of a, a an invoice for all the various things, including fireworks and all sorts of stuff that the Jews had to pay wow. for. In, in Carpentras, the side door to the church still has what is called the boule des rats, which is an image of rats in a circle over the doorway. And the Jews would enter this side door when they came to sort of change their faith, to make a profession of faith, and come out from the front door cleansed. But having said that, there was one exceptional, unfortunate period with regards to conversions, and that was in 1720. There was a terrible outbreak of the plague, which began in Marseille and swept across the region. And in Avignon, the contagion was virulent, and it led to many Jewish victims in the carrière, in the ghetto, being neglected. The sick were, based the Jewish sick anyway, were basically stacked up in the rear entrance of the hospital on, on straw, and church missionaries obtained numerous conversions on the promise that these Jews would be cared for if they changed religion, and this even included preying on young children. So, unfortunately, that was one time that there were successes, albeit for 
extenuating circumstances, there was an associated threat from apostate Druze who came back into these four ghettos as blackmailers. And they frightened the families by threatening them that they would lead their children to baptism if they won't give them money. And since the church would recognize a baptism, however it was carried out, really, the, that threat was very real, so much so that the Jews appealed to the Bishop of Cavaillon on behalf of all the four ghettos. And the, the letter translated or an extract is, uh, you know, Monseigneur, we, the principal Jewish figures of the, of the four carrières, beg you on bended knee to deliver the carrière of the oppression and ills that threaten them because a number of Jews have left the Cantat and others are on the verge of leaving and the desertion will soon be so great that the only Jews remaining in our communities will be those without the means to undertake a migration. Well, so I'm assuming the Jews departing would mean less revenue to the church. That's the threat. Yes, in other words, as you point out, it's not quite clear whether any Jews had actually left the region, but money was always a good way to get uh, their Hmm. attention. Now, beyond conversion, another intrusion, Christian intrusion into Jewish life was the censorship of books, which we'd mentioned in the Prague episode. This was true here as well. All Talmud-related works were forbidden ever since the decree of 1555, as were works on Kabbalah and Medrash. And, for instance, in 1754, in a raid on the Jewish houses, it's recorded that 93 households had 297 illegal books, or really, um, we could say 297 books were discovered because they hid as many as they could. I mean, they didn't have a lot of place to hide because the carrière was quite full, but because there were so many people there, I guess there was some possibility. And the censors then divided these illegal Jewish books into two kinds, those that were absolutely forbidden and they were never returned, and books which were corrected and certain passages were crossed out, obliterated. And I've seen some of the latter in Provence. In fact, to this day, they're trying to get funding to make a public display of these books, which in some cases are hundreds of years old. I mean, clearly they're at least 250 years old, but even older. What sort of books are they? Svarim, one of them was a volume of the Tor, halachic work. One of them was Midrashic, you know, all sorts of. And then having spoken about conversion and censorship, the most visible sign of church policy can still be seen on the ground today, quite literally. The burial ground, the cemetery, enclosed by a wall dating back to 1367. But walk in there today and you will see no graves or tombstones because from 1625 onwards, Pope Urban VIII forbade any inscriptions. And in 1751, this decree was not only repeated, but they also now forbade saying any tehillim or prayers on the way to burial or lighting candles during the Leviah. Prayer, however, was encouraged for the welfare of the Pope. Uh, You know, we've once again touched upon this in the previous podcast that Jews often said a prayer for the ruler whom they lived under, a bizarre 
as it sounds. This included, you know, praying for the continued health of the Tsar, as we mentioned, and various other despots, sometimes voluntarily, sometimes not. Just in case it works. Or just in case somebody's listening sometimes. <laughs> and in the cantat, their, their prayer reads in part, I will quote it, He who has conferred power upon kings and princes, may he raise and exalt our Lord, the Holy Father, our Pope. Supplicate God that he accords him grace, protection, and favor. Favor, I suppose, for shutting up the Jews in the tiny ghetto with few rights and even fewer possessions. Um, although in that crazy world, it was still a place to call home, as opposed to all the rest of France, or all of England, or Spain, or Portugal, or southern Italy, or all of Russia, where not a single Jew was allowed to reside officially in the 1500s. So, you know. All considered it was still a roof. Yeah, exactly. I'd like to close this series with one last personality, so that we can close on a slightly spooky note. Your favourite. Um, <laughs> Rav Yitzhak ben Abamori, who lived from around 1122 to 1193 from Marseille. To those who learn halacha, he is known as the Itur, Sevaha Itur. And there are many rulings quoted in his name, especially in Shulchan Aruch, the most famous being in the laws of Shabbos, regarding instructing a non-Jew to do work, in which he is more lenient than almost anybody, and it is used in extenuating circumstances. Now, he points out that the blessing we make under the chuppah makes no sense. Mekadesh Amo Yisrael, we are sanctified, al yudei chuppah v'kidushin, through chuppah and kidushin. But chuppah comes second in halacha. It always follows onto kidushin. In fact, in Talmudic times, there was up to 12 months between kidushin happening first and then chuppah. So he says, no. It's a base, not a vav. It's not but through this act. Now, he also ruled that on Hoshana Rabbah, when we beat the Hoshanas, we make a bracha beforehand, which actually makes sense because we often make a bracha on these type of customs, especially Ashkenazim. And he has various works, one of which is called the Aseris Hadibrois, not the Ten Commandments that we know about, which led to some confusion when people quote him. But, oddly enough, most of his writings were never printed during the time of printing, you know, from the late sort of 1400s and the 1500s, to the extent that the Chidot, who uh, came across this in the late 1700s, and he himself was uh, an enormous bibliophile, and he, he wrote an encyclopedia on Jewish books called Shem HaGadolim. He remarks that it is known from generations past that the Itur's Sefer is considered Seid Alma de Iskasia, which means it's a, a secret that it should be, remain hidden, should remain in the hidden worlds and not be revealed. And he goes on to write, the Chidah, that anyone who tried to print it would either lose the manuscript or die young. He gives examples. He says the Marash al-Ghazi lost the manuscript. Rav Yaakov Noach authored a commentary, died at the age of 32. Wow. So I hope all the reckless teenagers listening to our series aren't going to be tempted to print 
<laughs> is where and see what happens. Yeah. yeah, I think of late there might be one, but it's, has uh, that ever happened before that someone wrote something that was too revealing, almost that wasn't ready for this world? It is, by the way, said about somebody much closer to our times about Rabaria Kaplan. That right. He died relatively young. I mean, I think he was 48 or something because he was he was translating Sefer Yitzirah and works on Kabbalah. That's what some people have said. I mean, not that anybody knows because we don't have prophecy, but yeah. yes, it is said. I really need to be careful about what I do in my spare time. Yes. Um, on that note, we conclude our four-part series. Thank you very much. That was yet another fascinating series, especially, as I always say, when, when how many times we've heard Chachme Provincia, I just have no idea the context, the yeah. rich history that, yeah. that has led us to here. So that was really something special. Do you have a plan for next week? Yes, so we have the next two-part series is about Purim. Well, not really. It's about similar events to Purim, which occurred at various points in history around the world, including one less than 70 years ago, which was potentially the most dangerous. Intriguing as always. Hopefully. Thank you very much, Robert Hirsch. So we're looking forward to seeing you next week. Thank okay. you. Thank you. <laughs>